This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back for a second series of Gosh Pods Goes Green. In this series, which is being launched on Clean Air Day on the 15th of June, we are focusing on the important issue of air pollution. Over the next eight weeks, we will explore the impact of air quality on our health, factors contributing to air pollution, and start to think about what we can do as individuals and as healthcare professionals to improve our air quality and advocate for change. I'm Emma Foreman, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Education Fellow at Great Ormond Street Hospital. I'm delighted to be joined on today's episode by Professor Sir Stephen Holgate, who is a clinical professor of immunopharmacology at the University of Southampton, but also the founder of the Committee on the Medical Effects of Air Pollutants and Special Advisor on Air Quality to the Royal College of Physicians. He's going to be talking to me in a bit more detail about the variety of ways that air pollution can affect our health and some of the research that is currently being done in this area. Thank you so much, Stephen, for coming on the podcast today. It's such an honour to have you. My pleasure, Emma. Would you mind starting just by telling me a bit about yourself and your work and how you became interested in the subject of air pollution and health? Well, yes, I was brought up in Manchester during the 1950s and early 60s. And of course, that was at the heart of the industrial north of England and air pollution The great smogs of the 1950s, I remember very clearly as a child, where people had to walk in front of buses with a torch so the driver could steer slowly down the streets. But then as my career evolved in medicine, I became interested in research and subsequently in research into lung disease. And having trained in London, I then moved to Southampton and set up a respiratory research centre here. And my focus was asthma. And of course, if you're interested in asthma, well, you're interested in what makes asthma worse. And one of those factors is air pollution. So that's really how I got involved in it and gradually got more and more interested in understanding it. Right. Okay. So your work evolved because obviously air pollution is actually an integral part of research into asthma because the, the two are so kind of inextricably linked, I guess. Yes. And we commonly think of asthma as an allergic condition which it is in most children and young adults. We also think of virus infections triggering attacks of asthma, but we don't often think about air pollution as being an important factor. And I think it's this lack of prominence of the air pollution aspect of asthma that really took my interest. And as my research into the mechanisms of asthma increased, I became very interested in the lining cells of the airways. And these are the cells, of course, which get damaged by the chemicals that are breathed in from the environment that people are living in. So that's really how mechanistically I got involved in the air pollution side. Right. Okay. No, that's really fascinating. And we'll talk a little bit more about your kind of work on asthma and air pollution later in the episode. In the first episode of the series, we had a chat to Dr. Mark Hayden, who's one of the intensive care consultants at Great Ormond Street. And he kind of alluded to the fact that air pollution has just a huge wide ranging impact on our health, not just on our respiratory system, and that that starts from before we're even born. 
Could you talk a little bit more about the many and varied ways in which air pollution does negatively affect our health in general? We know that breathing poor quality air damages the lung. I mean, you only have to talk to patients with lung disease of any form, and not just asthma, to know that because they notice their disease gets worse during times when air quality is bad, particularly in the winter months when air quality is particularly bad, especially in urban settings. And epidemiological studies over the last 15 to 20 years have shown very convincingly that uh, air pollution is a contributory factor to many non-communicable diseases. So what happens here is that either the gases, but especially the particles, the very small particles, often less than 2.5 micrometers in diameter, when breathed into the lung, sets up an inflammatory reaction in the lung. And that's why asthma and similar diseases get worse during air pollution episodes. But I think the real breakthroughs came probably about 15 years ago when it was recognized that these little particles don't just restrict themselves to the lung, but can cross over into the circulation of pulmonary vasculature and then circulate around the body. And of course, they can get held up anywhere, coronary blood vessels, the brain, bone marrow, wherever. And as a result of this, when these particles come to rest in these places, they start releasing their chemicals locally. And it's the local release of the chemicals, plus the fact that these particles are irritant anyway, that sets up this low-grade inflammation that we associate with the chronic effects of air pollution. And this low level of inflammation that occurs in different parts of the body then brings forward and accelerates common non-communicable diseases. And those don't just include lung disease, like asthma and COPD, but also many cardiovascular disorders, particularly coronary heart disease, of course, strokes. And more recently, as we think about cognition, they affect the brain. And in the brain, it accelerates conditions such as Alzheimer's, which, of course, is a, a quite a complex condition in its own right, but also vascular dementia as well. But the other side of all of this is, as you pointed out in your introduction, the importance of these particles and the gases, but the particles in particular, on development of the child in the uterus, really. And so the last five to ten years has been intense interest in trying to look at the effects of maternal air pollution exposure on the developing intrauterine fetus. And I think now, overwhelmingly, we know several important facts. But one of them is that it damages the child in different ways. So we know that air pollution can increase the chances of having a child that, whose lungs, whose heart and whose brain doesn't develop properly. And these sorts of actions of air pollution, of course, are quite worrying because if we're getting exposure before the child enters the real world, it means these particles have got to cross the placenta and either into the fetal circulation and into the fetus itself or affect the placenta and the secretion of various chemicals by the placenta that, of course, is feeding the baby. So those two things are probably both operating by a mechanism called epigenetics, whereby the low-grade inflammation that I referred to earlier sets up a whole range 
of environmental interactions with the genes that are obviously part of developing the baby and switches them on and off in a way that leads to smaller lungs, reduced cardiac development. And now we know affects brain development as well. Yeah, I mean, it's both fascinating and frightening at the same time that these particles and substances can have such wide-reaching effects. Indeed it is. And of course, what's different from when I was a young lad is the fact you can't see these particles because in the days of the smogs, the particles are much larger. So obviously under those conditions, they weren't able to cross the lungs so easily. But these particles, which come out from various sources, whether it's the emissions of burning diesel or the shipping that we have around our coastline, whether it's the diesel being burnt on trains, whatever it is, the particles are much, much smaller and they are coated with a much more wide range of chemical substances, which are the things that sort of set up these reactions I've been talking about. And they've shown now in the placenta and in the older brain that these particles actually, once they land in these places, stay there. And so in the case of dementia, for example, and Alzheimer's, they've shown that these particles can be found in the plaques, the amyloid plaques and the neurofibrillary tangles that make up the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. But they've also found them in the atheromatous plaques of blood vessels in the heart and in the brain and in the periphery. So you can see in a way how this over a lifetime, not just one episode or two episodes of exposure, but over a lifetime, how this can bring forward death. And that's why the epidemiologists have been able to say confidently that between 36 to 40,000 deaths here in England and Wales are brought forward by air pollution exposure, not caused by air pollution exposure, because you need many other factors in these diseases as well, but brought forward, accelerated, a little bit like obesity that we know can accelerate all these conditions too, in a very uh, sort of silent way. So I think we mustn't think of air pollution as a sudden hit, and that's it. We must think of it as a chronic lifetime exposure, a little bit like tobacco smoking, but of course involuntary in this case. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually an analogy that was brought up in our previous episode as well. We've talked a little bit about fetuses and fetal development. Are there any other groups that are particularly vulnerable to the effects of air pollution that we should be considering? Well, the central mechanism of action of all these pollutants is probably oxidant stress. That is, when the gas or the particle meets a human cell, the cell sort of switches on its alarm mechanisms and starts to think it's being invaded by a virus or a bacteria. And as an attempt to try and neutralize that, starts switching on genes that otherwise wouldn't be switched on. So this is really what causes the low-grade inflammation, this sort of tissue damage that's undetectable unless you actually look for it. So in terms of diseases, besides the ones I've mentioned, I think the important thing to recognize is that any chronic inflammatory disease including conditions like diabetes, skin disease, eye disease, will be accelerated and made worse on exposure to air pollution. And this air pollution, of course, gets in very quietly, doesn't make a big noise, so we don't know it's happening. And that's really the sort of bit that most of the public probably aren't appreciating, that we are being exposed to these chemicals all the time. And certainly the World Health Organization now 
refined their air quality limit values for particles and for nitrogen dioxide, which is a, a gaseous pollutant from burning diesel fuel largely, right the way down because the health effects now occur right the way down to zero. In other words, there are no safe levels of air pollution and there are no sort of boundaries that need to be crossed for safety. All air pollution is toxic. And so in terms of policy development going forwards, we've got to try and get to as lower levels as possible. I think the other thing to say, Emma, here is that it's the extremes of life where we're seeing effects mostly. So we've talked about babies and children, obviously, when their organs are developing and growing and chemical insults from breathing in toxic air obviously isn't a good thing during that period. But then at the other end of life, when we've got older people, we've got obviously chronic diseases happening there, diabetes, strokes, dementias, etc, etc. And this is where the pollutants are having an effect too. So I think the best way of thinking about this is that vulnerabilities are important. And those vulnerabilities not only relate to ongoing disease processes, but where people live. So the inequalities agenda for doctors and health professionals is an important part of this, because those that are most exposed to the pollutants, whether outside or in their houses, are those that can least cope with it, those that have the worst diets, those that live in under a lot of stress for other reasons, and therefore the air pollution effects are going to be that much worse. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important thing to bear in mind. And we are going to be having an episode on inequality in air pollution later in the series. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. Right, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit more now about air pollution and asthma, which I know is where you said your interest started. And I know that between 2018 and 2020, you were one of the key witnesses in the second coroner's inquest examining the case of Ella Kissy Deborah, who died really tragically of asthma in 2013. And I believe it was evidence that you gave both before and during the inquest that was quite instrumental in the coroner's decision to include air pollution on her death certificate as a contributory cause of death, which I think was the first time that has ever happened and the last time. So I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on that case. And maybe more specifically ask you why that's the only time that that's happened when we said earlier that air pollution is probably a factor in about 40,000 deaths each year in the UK. So why aren't we seeing it more on death certificates and talked about a bit more? What are the barriers to that? Well, we should be seeing it on more death certificates. I think it's a simple answer. The problem with this whole area is that if you don't know what the levels of air pollution are in relation to where somebody lives and travels and works, it's very difficult to associate air pollution levels with a disease process, because if you don't know what the levels are, you can't make that link. So it's not like tobacco smoking, where you can obviously see somebody smoke cigarettes, or we know how many packs of cigarettes people buy, when well, you can quantify that. But for air pollution, you can't. So the thing that really was important in Ella's case was the fact that there was an air pollution monitoring station about a mile from where Ella lived in London. She lived close to the South Circular Road there, where we know there's lots of air pollution. 
And so we had some really, really amazingly accurate levels of all the different pollutants measured across her life. Secondly, the council, the local council where she lived, quite independently had put various diffusion tubes around the area, quite separate from the government monitoring side, because they were interested in changing their transport in that area and wanted to get some evidence about what pollution the transport was actually generating. And so those two pieces of evidence, obviously, were very, very helpful in my being able to take the medical notes from the six hospitals where she had 27 admissions with cardiorespiratory arrest in many of them. We were able to take that information, plus the pathological report, plus the post-mortem report that was undertaken at Greater Ormond Street Hospital. We were able to take all of that into account. And then, of course, look at the nature of the processes that her attacks were revealing in relation to a variety of environmental factors. Now, the obvious ones for asthma, which is what she had, would have been allergy and viruses, as we mentioned earlier. So we looked for that in great detail. There were pollen counts in her neighbourhood. So there were allergen measurements made at different times, and there was no relationship between these hospital episodes and allergen exposure. So that's one thing. The second thing we were able to look at was viruses, because they they looked for many, many different viruses, because they were convinced, obviously, the admitting doctors were convinced that virus episodes were triggering their attacks because they occurred mostly in the autumn and winter months when we get all these viruses. But despite an incredible amount of effort, none of them were able to identify any viruses linked to these episodes. And then when it came to the final thing, she had bronchoscopies and and she had a post-mortem, it was obvious that the lining cells of her airways were really being destroyed, I think, by what looked like chemical irritation, in essence. In other words, she was genetically at risk of developing damage to the lining of her airways. As I mentioned at the start of this talk, you know, my whole career has been in asthma and my interest is in lining of the airways. So these two things sort of coincided and I was able to bring that scientific understanding into this inquiry. And of course, as you correctly said, the coroner overturned the first inquest and included air pollution as the cause of her asthma. Not only the acute episodes, the 27 episodes that she had and the one that finally killed her, but also the induction of asthma in the first place. Just linking back now to what I was talking about earlier, about the early life origins of disease, the effect of this air pollution on her development in the uterus and in the first few years of life. She was a normal child until five. She was swimming. She was very good at school. She played musical instruments. She played with a local football club. I mean, you know, there was nothing wrong with Ella until she reached the age of five. And this was really very dramatic when things started to go wrong. And I think that's a crucial bit of this. Right. That's really fascinating. And I hadn't quite appreciated that about the case, that the fact that this almost kind of, you know, it's quite fortuitous placement of the air quality monitors allowed you to make that link whereas actually for most people you just don't have that data to show the direct relationship between their symptoms and the air quality in that area exactly and so what we have in air quality monitoring in this country are background levels across the country from about 400 monitors scattered across the uk make really good measurements 
But of course, often these are miles away from where people live and have little relevance to their daily exposure. And of course, the daily exposure is determined by, you know, their lifestyle, where they live, how they travel, you know, what happens during their time off work and, and so on. So until we start beginning to get more insight into local levels of air pollution by monitoring locally and informing the public locally what they're exposed to, this link is going to be quite difficult. But I'm very pleased to say, you know, as a direct result of all of this publicity over the last you know, few years, and especially since Ella's mother, Rosamond, she's been absolutely amazing in drawing attention to pollution and her daughter's death, then local air quality monitoring by local authorities is now beginning to take up. And in addition, you know, modelling by the meteorological office is now getting much better. So instead of having several kilometres where they do the modelling of air pollution across the country. We're getting down now to one kilometre or less. So you can think about air pollution in relation to where people live. So we're beginning to get maps now of local air quality in relation to these much improved models as a direct result of a more granular monitoring that's been happening across the UK. And that the DEFRA data, which is these 400 or so monitors, have been supplemented now by these other more locally placed monitors, giving a much more accurate information. I think the big step now, of course, is to keep pushing that forward and then getting it into the public domain. So at bus stops and in GP surgeries and in hospitals, we should know what the levels of air pollution are. Yeah, and I guess you need to make an invisible problem more visible so people yeah. notice it. Perfect expression. It. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's it, really. And you could call this an invisible killer, really, which is what my colleague Gary Fuller has named it in his book. And any of you who want to hear a little bit about <laughs> about the history of air pollution, do read his book. It's fantastic. It's only a little short book, but it really goes through what's happened in history and, and how we've got to this place without these, without a much better set of circumstances and how people have avoided making the difficult decisions, which we're now beginning to make with alternative transport and alternative energy and all of that, coinciding with the climate change agenda as well. Yeah. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about the targets for air quality. So you've explained that monitoring is becoming more and more widespread, and hopefully we should have more data about what exactly the air quality is in our area. And obviously the WHO has set kind of target limits for certain substances and pollutants within the air. But then also earlier you said that there is no safe level of pollution. So how have the WHO targets been decided? And I guess how do we know what we should be aiming for as a country? <laughs> what a wonderful series of questions. Absolutely superb. I mean, firstly, the health air quality limits with the WHO have agreed, the latest ones in 2021, are arrived at from epidemiological studies. So they've done masses of epidemiology all across the world in different countries, including the UK, and been able to extrapolate that a dose-response relationship between death being brought forward, premature death of all causes, or cardiovascular cause or respiratory cause, and background levels of air pollution. So that's how they've arrived at the health-related limit values, which now 
for particles PM 2.5, that's five micrograms per meter cubed. And for NO2, it's 10 micrograms per meter cubed. At present in the United Kingdom, the air quality limit values are 20 micrograms per meter cubed for particles and 40 micrograms per meter cubed for NO2. So four times or greater than the health-related air quality limit values. And this has really happened because governments have to take into account all sorts of other things. So there's a lot of lobbying that goes on. So the car industry, the oil industry, you know, the feasibility of being able to get air quality down by making difficult decisions, all of this is taken into account when these air quality limit values are arrived at. I'm very pleased to say now that we have such strong evidence on health that our government and other governments are taking this much more seriously and are moving towards the health-related air quality limit values. But even now, we're not going to reach the WHO limit value before 2040. In fact, what this government has done is to give us the 2005 limit values to aim for, which is 10 micrograms per meter cube, which they think they can arrive at by 2040. I think many people think we can arrive at it by 2030 because many of the steps moving towards those limit values are being introduced through the climate change agenda where there seems to be much more political will than there seems to be around air pollution. I think what we need to do, Emma, is to try and connect these two things much more closely together, because 46% of the climate change pollutants, in addition to the CO2, are these short-lived air pollutants, like the black carbon and ozone and similar air pollutants. So, you know, if we got these down, this would be early hits for the climate change agenda, whereas getting CO2 down is going to be really take many years and is much more complex. So there's real added value in bringing these two agendas much closer together and that by targeting transport and targeting other sources of particulate emissions, for example, then we should be able to get the climate and, and net zero targets achieved much more quickly. Yeah, no, I think that makes complete sense. And there is a lot of overlap between the two. I mean, I, I don't even really think of them as two movements. I think of it as like all one issue, but clearly yeah. they are separated in, in some way. And, and yeah, I, I completely understand what you're saying. It's clearly a very complex issue and there's lots of things that make it difficult for us to improve our air quality. And I mean, you'd hope that for most people the health argument would be enough of an incentive to make this change. But change is going to cost, there's going to be some economic impact of instigating large scale changes. So is there an economic argument for doing it too? What's the economic impact of health issues relating to pollution? Well, the problem with the economic arguments for not doing it is that it's all short term. So, you know, it's inconvenient. We have to replace, you know, our transport and so on. It's going to cost money, in other words, and it costs people in terms of their lifestyles. You know, it's, they're going to have to change some of the things they do, the way they travel around, how they heat their homes, et cetera, et cetera. But on the long term, there's huge economic gains. I mean, you know, air pollution costs up to £20 billion a year. In the, in the United Kingdom. That's almost twice as high as obesity. 
which we always are talking about in terms of its impact on people's life expectancy. And yet we don't talk about air quality within that frame. And we should, because you don't see obesity commonly on air, on death certificates either. Because obesity contributes, as air pollution does, to many different diseases, including diabetes and heart disease and lung disease, etc. So I, I think having something on a death certificate is, is very, very unusual, as I just illustrated with Anna. But I think going forward now, we've got to be thinking of ways that help the greater public understand that every single person's action can make a difference here. This isn't all about the government must do this, the government must do that. It's about how we want to create an environment for our children and our grandchildren that is going to be safe to live in and the best environment we can create. And to do that, we need to sort of get at all the different components. So that's the industry, how we generate energy, transport, and how we get around the country and get around our neighbourhoods, urban planning, how we get our houses built and and how we regenerate the sort of protection that housing can give against air pollution exposure, power generation, agricultural waste. And then, of course, you know, the healthcare things. I mean, we as health professionals should be, in a way, the sort of leaders here, really. I mean, we were for smoking, tobacco smoking. It was the health professions that took the charge and got the legislation of smoking in open spaces, etc., but we haven't seen that engagement of the health professions yet with air quality. It's beginning to happen. Certainly Great Ormond Street Hospital is a leader in this area, which is great. But we need to be the sort of people speaking out. So we need to be having conversations with our patients who have these diseases. We need to walk into our GP surgeries and hospitals and other areas where health is discussed and have visible information about air pollution so that the public can understand what the nature is, just as we do with tobacco and diabetes and all these other things when we go into these environments. But we should see air pollution there. And we need to be thinking then of taking a lead. So our, our hospitals need to be thinking about its transport. It needs to be thinking about its alternative energy generation. It needs to be thinking about you know, the ventilation of its buildings and so on. And this is now happening but it hasn't been up until recently. And I think if we all have a go at chipping away at this, it's going to make a difference. It's not all about low emission zones and ultra low emission zones, which I know are very inconvenient for some people. It is about you know, wanting a nice place to live in where our children can play safely outside without fearing vehicles all around them, where the air quality that they breathe, both outside when they're playing and going to school and indoors when they're in their housing, is safe. And we've had several examples recently where that has not been the case. Not only Ella, but the little boy in Rochdale who died due to the fungal exposure that he was exposed to. That is all part of this same agenda, really. It is the air that's being breathed that is unhealthy. So we need a bit more attention on indoor air pollution as well as outdoor. And the chief medical officer's report last year really shone a light on that. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way of viewing the problem and recognising that there are steps that need to be taken as individuals, as societies, at government level and all these different levels to really kind of make an impact and start to, to see this change. 
what are the steps that you think are most important? What would you like to see happen at any level that, you know, you've talked a little bit about healthcare institutions and as healthcare professionals, but at a national level, what do you think are the key steps that we need? I think one of the things that was quite upsetting when we had the inquest in 2020 of Ella, Madhu, Kissy, Deborah was the fact that of the six hospitals that she was admitted to, over the 27 times she went into them, no one ever asked about air pollution. And so the actual knowledge that the health professionals have about air pollution is actually quite low. It's not built into the training very much of medical students or nurses or physiotherapists. They have to pick things up along the way themselves. So I think a really good step really would be if we got air pollution onto the sort of environmental issues that doctors are trained in, just as we would talking about diet or protecting ourselves against microbial infections. We need to get air pollution in there. And work is going on now to try and make sure that does happen. A lot more needs to go on there, but I think it would help. Secondly, we need doctors to come up and start speaking out about this because the diseases that they're sitting in their clinics treating, the coronary heart disease, the COPD, the asthma, the dementia, the strokes, and all the rest of it, air pollution is playing a very significant role. And to ignore it really is not actually delivering the preventative sort of healthcare that many of us as practitioners would like to see happen. So the National Health Service itself, I think, has to now start grasping these public health issues to improve the public's health by stopping the progress of these diseases, by improving not only air quality, but obviously diet and all sorts of other things that public health has is, is got on its agenda. So public health, I think, has a particularly strong role to play here. And then finally, you know, we have Clean Air Day coming up on June the 15th, which is very soon. And it it would be wonderful, just as Great Ormond Street are going to do, if our hospitals around the country and our primary healthcare settings, you know, did something on Clean Air Day to draw the public's attention to how important this issue is. And I think that sort of will be really helpful. And to start talking to their administration about trying to get more visibility of air pollution materials in the outpatient clinics and in the waiting areas where patients can see it. And to start thinking about the ambulances and the engines that are continually uh, turning over burning diesel outside intensive care units. I mean, whether that really is the right way of setting a trend for diminishing air pollution in the very environment where most of the sickest people are. So I think if we demonstrate that we were serious here across the health professions, then I think that would be a great message for the public to pick up. And importantly, the government as well. And that, you know, I think we have seen recently that the Department of Health and Social Care has taken greater interest in this area, as dictated by Chris Whitty's recent report on air pollution. And so, you know, we're moving in the right direction. But all I would say is more, more, more. Yeah, absolutely. I think a really important message. So thank you. I guess to maybe end the podcast on a more positive, optimistic note, 
Yeah. Are there any particular examples of good projects or success stories, either within the UK or abroad, where they've had really good success with improving air quality? There have been some wonderful examples. I mean, the United States, for example, in California, you know, they had a governor there who really pushed clean air over a period of about 20, 15 to 20 years. And uh, they got their air quality really, really good. And they were able to demonstrate directly and publish this as well. Not only did children's lungs grow bigger in that environment compared to others living outside California, but also diseases like bronchial asthma and virus-induced wheezing in infancy and COPD improved as well in that setting. So there's direct proof that by cleaning up the air, the public health is actually delivered to real people. There are other great examples too. In Holland, for example, they've done some marvellous work where they've used planning and the creation of green spaces in the planning to make sure that transport and the personal experience that one gets when one enters that urban environment is an enjoyable one and, and a pleasant one. And, you know, if you think about London, which is where we have some of our worst air quality, it's improving now, I'm pleased to say, but it, where it was worse. You know, we often talk about, you know, the Green Ribbon, the wonderful parks of London and how important they are. Well, they're important for helping clean up the air, but they're also important because they improve the quality of life for people who live close to these areas. And so we need more green spaces. We need to create environments which are more environmentally sustainable over time for our children and our older people. And we need to build, I think, the planning of our urban settings into this. And as we have witnessed in London so effectively with the developments in central London now where people are moving back into the city centres, the environments that they're actually generating there are actually very nice places to live with green spaces and easy access to, to shops without having to drive your car there and so on. So as our cities start to think about that redevelopment plans, you know, air pollution should be an important part of this. And everybody should be asking when there is going to be a new development in an urban setting, what are the health effects of the air pollution going to be? And what are the transport consequences of having this estate here or having an estate there? So that's what I would say. The positive side of this, I think, is small incremental changes make a big difference. So if, if the whole country just did a few small things, it would make a massive difference to the air quality that we breathe. You know, so if we actually ventilated our homes properly, if we cleaned up our transport, if we walked and cycled more to local areas rather than having to drive there, if we stopped driving our children to school but got them to walk or use communal transport, you know, all of these small things together would have a massive effect overall. Yeah, that's that's really I guess, important to highlight that we can maybe make a difference at an individual level as well. It's not all out of our hands. We do have yeah. some control. We've got choices and it's what we choose. And we shouldn't just be thinking about ourselves. We need to be thinking about our children and their children. You know, what sort of world do we want those children to be born into? And a cleaner, greener, friendlier environment is a pretty good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. So thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation and 
I guess, an inspirational message. It's been wonderful to talk to you. My pleasure, Emma. And uh, I want to look at Clean Air Day on June the 15th and hear hundreds of hospitals are all going to do what Great Ormond Street's going to do, which is to draw attention to this issue. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gosh Pods Goes Green. We hope you can join us again next week, where we are going to be talking to Tom Parks from Camden City Council about outdoor air pollution. The team at the Gosh Learning Academy would love to get your feedback on the episode, as well as hear your suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on Gosh Pods. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. Thanks for listening to Gosh Pods and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.